Kelsey, that's a wonderful story. I got to pick on you just a little bit though, because the first service parents didn't get the uh, didn't get the encouragement of that nap. So you can those of you parents today, just be glad you came to second service because it's now an official church teaching. Your children have to let you take a good nap today. First service folks, we're sorry. <laughs> we'll correct it next time. <laughs> We're going to, uh, to kind of continue. We're going to piggyback a little bit on last week's teaching a little bit today in our focus. But on the off chance that you happen to miss last week's teaching, uh, I want to recap just a little bit so that we're all kind of sort of together. If you did happen to miss last week, I really want to invite you to go back and, and check that because we're going to kind of do a gloss over 30,000 foot view over last week right now. And so you might not catch all of the, uh, the content, just in case you feel a little left behind or left out. Want to make sure you uh, know you can go back and catch that on our website, our podcast, our YouTube feed, something along those lines. Last week, our focus was on having a good attitude, and we kind of deviated a little bit from the classical definition of attitude, of kind of like our, our mental state um, uh, uh, towards a situation or towards an object or towards people. Instead, um, I really wanted us to lean into kind of an, a, a flight or aeronautics definition of attitude. And so we, we looked at how definite, or excuse me, how attitude is the orientation of an aircraft or spacecraft relative to the direction of travel. So most of us, when we drive our cars around, the direction that we are going is the direction that we're pointed, okay? Unless there's some drifters out here, which, you know... Don't do it in our parking lot, and we love you anyway. Um, but for most of us, that's how we travel. We're on a bicycle, we're walking most of the time. We are pointed in the direction that we're traveling. Well, in flight, that's not always the case because of a variety of factors that I'm frankly pretty unfamiliar with. I do know that you know, an attitude of an aircraft can be adjusted um, and, and measured relative to the direction of travel. So you might experience a little bit of pitch up or down or roll to one side or the other, or there's that wonderful word yaw again of side to side rotation. All of those aspects go into measuring the attitude of an aircraft and their orientation to where they are going. And last week we kind of loosely grabbing that definition of attitude, we decided that having a good attitude was having a good orientation to reality. There's a reality of who we are and what life is like in Jesus, and we want to be oriented properly to that reality. Amen? Okay, so we went to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, to get a snapshot of one aspect of the reality that we experience in Christ. Paul's writing the church of Ephesus, he says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in verse 22, Paul says this, he says, in him you also, that you, again, is singular. He's talking to individuals. In him you also are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
Paul is again given voice to one of the several places he gives voice to this reality that we see expressed in the narrative of Acts chapter 2. You remember the, the, the story of Pentecost when the believers are in the upper room and they're praying for the comforter that Jesus has promised and the Holy Spirit is poured out on them and we, the, the, the manifestation is tongues of fire resting over their heads in an identical symbol of God's presence coming over the temple. But this time, instead of a building, God's presence is showing up over the individual believers that make up his church. And it's clear that the church understood this. Paul continues to flesh this out, that when you are in Christ, when you are baptized and you receive the new life that Jesus has given to you, God makes his heart your home. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so if you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, we saw that the, the two kind of foundational truths that go with that, that God's presence is with you. Often the way we talk and even the way we behave is, is that we are kind of chasing after the presence of God. We want to invite the presence of God to come to be with us. When in reality, in Christ, he has made our heart his home. God's presence is with us. Sometimes we kind of fall asleep to the reality of his presence. But he is with us nonetheless. And then the second truth is that God's presence is with all other Christians too. Just to make sure that we don't get a little too puffed up. I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, well, so is Jerry. So is Brian. So is Jeff. Like, it's awesome that I am, but it's also awesome that every other believer in Christ is too. Because of these two things, we, we kind of acknowledge several truths, and I want to go through them with you today, again, very briefly, just to make sure that we're kind of all together. One is that I bring the presence of God with me wherever I go, that if God has made my heart his home. If I am a temple of the Holy Spirit, God's presence is with me, then where I go, God's presence goes as well. Whether that be to this facility, this church building, whether that be to our local Tualatin Valley Academy, if I stop at a gas station to fuel up my car, God's presence is in that gas station because he has chosen to live inside of me. And this temple is, is there at the moment. I, again, invited you to do this last week, but seriously, give a lot of thought and, and just appreciation of this, that your very presence in a location and around other people is a blessing because God has chosen to live inside of you. Just by you showing up to a grocery store, to a restaurant, to a mechanic, God's presence has come to that establishment. That's an awesome thing. We should acknowledge that and we should think accordingly on that. Another thing, when I fellowship with the church, I encounter and I experience diverse facets of the same God that lives in me. Earlier in Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul has written that we are the workmanship, the masterpiece in production of Jesus himself. He's the one who's doing the work inside of us. And no two of us are exactly alike. Jesus is on purpose creating unique individuals to reveal unique facets of who he is to the world. And when we fellowship with one another, we're able to encounter what God is revealing through each other together. It's absolutely amazing. It's the same God that lives inside of each of us, but a different 
um, different aspect, a different facet of who he is, who he has chosen to reveal through each other. When I enter fellowship, I allow others to encounter and experience a unique facet of God. There's something unique that God is doing inside of me that he's not in anybody else. The same is true of you. And when we enter into fellowship, we give others the privilege of encountering that which God is doing inside of us. It's just amazing. Absolutely amazing. But unfortunately, the inverse of that is also true. That when I refrain from fellowship, when I stay away from other people, I deprive others of the encounter and experience of God in me. You with me so far? Very good. All right. All right. Continuing on, we acknowledge that I don't need to go to church to enter into God's presence. We all have had moments of encountering God, whether it be at home or in our car, driving down the road, or I asked and and first, so how many of you have ever had an experience with God in a grocery store? Yeah? A couple of you? Fantastic. Yeah. God can even meet us in the aisle at Safeway, even the cereal aisle, because his presence is with us, right? He has made our heart his home. And so in, in a sense... We bring God's presence to the church building when we come together. It feels kind of weird to say it, but it's true. Amen? Another thing, I enter into fellowship to encounter a fuller expression of God's presence. We can have incredibly rich and intimate encounters with God all by ourselves. Because God has not holding anything back. His presence is with us. And yet, if you, if you only go back for last week's sermon for this one little statement, I want to invite you to do it. Look ahead for the, the C.S. Lewis quote that I shared with you. C.S. Lewis shared something that's deeply profound in that he, he, was a, uh, he shared that he had a, was in a group of friends um, with these two individuals, and one of them sadly died. And in his reflections on the passing of his friend, he kind of meditated for a moment on the fact that even though you would imagine, potentially, that because now three friends are down to two, those two might have more of each other now, because there's not a third person there. He says, actually, it's not the case, because I will never experience again this friend's reaction to this friend's joke. He says that I am not enough to pull everything out of somebody's personality I need others around me to bring out the full person. And you know, the same thing is true of our experience with God. God has chosen to uniquely reveal himself through each of us. And though we can encounter him in deeply meaningful and personal ways on our own, and we should seek to, when we come together in fellowship, we experience a fuller expression of God's presence. We acknowledged together last week that if I do not regard myself and others as the temple of God, I will struggle to be aware of his presence. God says that he has made our hearts his home. And if we're looking for his presence somewhere else, we're probably going to struggle to be aware of his presence. So we said that we owe it to ourselves and to those around us. 
to be fully present and engaged as a temple of God in life. And then we acknowledge that uh, these things are true 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It's God's choice. I'm not the one who said, hey, you know what, God, you know, I'm, I'm pretty special. And there's, there's something that the world needs in me. So, you know, you should, uh, you should come and, and, and live in my heart because I think that would be a good thing. It's his call. Frankly, I, every once in a while, I'm like, are you sure, God? Because I see a lot of the warts. But he says, no, I'm going to live inside of you and reveal my love through you, even though you're still a work in progress. And he never takes a day off, an hour off. All the time, he's living in my heart. And yet, it is really difficult to live fully present and engaged 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Is it not? Yeah. Especially if we never practice it. So last week, we kind of talked about this idea of practicing the presence of God, of practicing seeking awareness of the reality of God's presence in our lives and in the midst of our fellowship. We talked about how that's one of the primary functions of our weekly gatherings. This, what we're doing right now, it's a super great opportunity for us to be reminded of the fact that we're temples of God and to be reawakened to the fact that there's temples of God all around us that we should either be appreciating or calling others into. And since this, what we are doing right here is so important, this morning we're going to, this afternoon, we're going to look at one specific aspect of what we do here during our gatherings. That is how we worship. Before we continue, I want to invite you to have a word of prayer with me. Our Father, we just thank you for the privilege that we have of not just being restored in right relationship with you, but as being your living, moving temples in this world. It's an honor and a privilege and a responsibility that we know that we haven't earned, we definitely don't deserve, but you have seen fit to make this your plan to reveal your love to the world. And so we ask that you give us wisdom and that you help us as we seek to live this well. Give us confidence and assurance knowing that this, because this is your plan, you will not let it fail. And may we seek to improve on our practice of your presence. Be with us as we delve a little deeper into our teaching today. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in contemporary Christian culture, the word worship has kind of been appropriated to refer to singing in a worship gathering or sing I, you get personal worship too, I guess. But often this, this word worship is, is contextualized as singing in church, right? Now, I want to acknowledge right from the get-go that that is a, a pretty limited definition of worship. In fact, the Apostle Paul gives us a much broader perspective in Romans chapter 12 when he says that our act of worship is to, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, which I think is another way of, of saying to seek to be fully present and engaged as a temple of his in this world. 
That is our act of worship, is to be fully present and engaged all the time. But while worship is much more than singing, I would posit to you that it is not less. In fact, in corporate gatherings, I believe it's our most basic and foundational practice. To put it another way, singing songs of praise and worship is perhaps the easiest practice for me to be fully present and engaged as a temple of God in fellowship. Singing songs of praise and worship is perhaps the easiest practice for me to be fully present and engaged as a temple of God in fellowship. Now, I didn't say it was easy, just that I think it was the easiest. And here's why. When we have our time of corporate singing, we're invited into active participation, right? Right now, we're in a part of our, our, our worship service where I would characterize what you are hopefully doing as passive participation. So perchance you are still listening to me, which is kind of a passive participation, if you will. Um, there's slight moments here or there where someone might call out, amen, or that's right, or something like that. And that's little little snippet, little blip here and there of active participation. But most of it is you're, you're being asked to sit and, well, try to not disturb those around you, but also to engage with the teaching from a more passive role, correct? But in, in singing, that's not the case. In singing, we're like, all right, let's all take the stage together. We're all going to rise in our voice and contribute to the sound in this room. It's active participation. And you, you know, another thing is that you don't need to form your own words. How many of you struggle to get out the right words at the right time? Yeah, sometimes. I, I think that me being allowed to come up here and speak is just a social experiment on that very thing. But um, during singing... We don't have to come up with our own words because very gifted and skilled individuals have crafted songs for us to appropriate their words for our use in worship. So pretty low bar there, right? We're not doing a spontaneous song where you just kind of hope that the person next to you is singing the same thing you are. We, we are. <laughs> well, in theory. The other thing is that you don't need to be a good musician, especially, especially from where you are sitting right now. There is literally no bar for skill level as a musician to participate. All that is required is to say, yeah, I want to engage with this. So again, I think it's just about the easiest practice that we can have. Today I want us to explore a couple facets of singing and worship. Because if being present and engaged here matters, and this is the easiest way to do that, I think we ought to strive to do it as well as we can. So I want to begin by talking about what happens when we sing and why it is important. So why is congregational singing part of our worship service? Is it because we've always done it that way? Well, yes and no. <laughs> After all, singing with like-minded believers has always been a part of life since well before Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Uh, many of you know the book of Psalms. It's not just poetry, but actually those Psalms are songs intended to be sung. And no doubt they could be sung by yourself or performed by an individual for another group. But we know that at least several of them were intended to be sung with people. Uh, Psalms 120 through 134 are perhaps the best example of this. They're labeled in your Bible as songs of ascent. 
you ever wonder what that means? A song of ascent. Well, they got that title because they were songs that the children of Israel were to sing as they journeyed up the last legs of their journey to Jerusalem, up the hill for the pilgrimage feast. As you ascended the hill to the city, you would sing these psalms together with those around you. So although it wasn't a structured liturgical service like this one or any other that you have been to probably, the songs would undoubtedly have been sung in community. Another thing is on the night of his arrest, Jesus led his disciples in the singing of a hymn before leaving the upper room. Then Paul later instructs churches to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and not just with, but in fact he says, to each other. With that, not at each other, but to each other. <laughs> Singing in corporate worship has always been part of what we do. But it's not an empty tradition. It's not just a tradition for tradition's sake. When we sing together, we forge bonds of unity with each other. When we lend our voice to a song, we add weight to it for those around us. How many of you have ever been to a secular concert? Yeah, probably most of us. How many of you have ever been at a secular concert where people started singing along with the performer? Yeah? You know this is true no matter if we're in a worship service or not. Anytime there is a song that is happening and people spontaneously begin to participate, it begins to feel more important and there is a like-mindedness that is drawn together with people, whether that be in a church service or in any other musical venue. However, when it is done in a worship context like this, the Holy Spirit comes and magnifies that kind of mystical happening that is hard to quantify. When we truly sing together, standing together as children of God, seeking the awareness of his presence, the Holy Spirit draws us tightly into unity in what matters most. It's the gospel of Jesus. As a worship leader myself, I can tell you that those are moments that I long for, some of the best moments of my life, when everyone in the room is fully present and engaged. The Spirit's presence is so tangible that it seems as if the song itself has come alive and we're all just along for the ride. Songs that we sing in worship, they're quite diverse in focus. We sing songs about the character of God. We sing songs about the works of God. We sing songs about our experiences with God. We sing songs addressed to God. And all of these have tremendous purpose and value. Engagement with each one functions as our confession of Jesus as Lord, as our prayer to him, and as our witness to those around us. Singing in worship can be a source of inspiration where mere words just don't cut it. There have been many times in my life when, honestly, I, I'm not feeling the words of a song. And on the chance that that... Uh, you can relate to that, that you're in a context of worship and you're like, I don't know about this one. I want to posit to you that it might be a reason to engage more, not less. I have found in my personal experience that often the songs I am most resistant to are the ones I need the most. Um, I shared a different story for a service. I promised this one for a second. So there's a, a song <clears throat> that I experienced uh, first time, probably about a year ago when it came out, called Raise a Hallelujah from Bethel Music. 
And it's, it's a kind of a catchy tune. Honestly, at first I was like, eh, okay, come on, Bethel. You, you brought us some other some stuff that was a little bit more, a little more powerful experientially for me in the past. This one just didn't quite seem to be right there. And every time it came on, I just kind of like, ah, skip. <clears throat> okay, listen to it for a little bit. And, okay, skip. Let's go to the next one. And, and uh, I, about six months ago, I found myself in a season where I had um, overtaxed myself in about every way <laughs> measurable. And <clears throat> I woke up in the middle of the night very, very sick. And um, for about four hours, I was awake and <clears throat> just... <clears throat> Let me say depleting my resources. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Um, and it, was, it came a point where medically, I, I mean, I'm sure I was quite a, a ways away from where I felt, but it sure felt like life couldn't really go on much longer because I was feeling so ill. Um, and I just felt an urge to, uh, that I should be praising God somehow through this, that I should be calling on his name. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm talking to myself in my head. <clears throat> Are you kidding me? Like, I can't talk. I barely have enough energy to moan, let alone to sing right now. And somehow, this song just bumped into my head. And so I, I dictated to Siri as best I could, play Raise a Hallelujah by Bethel Music. And the song came on, and oh my goodness. <clears throat> Literally, the, uh, the very words that if I could have in that moment crafted a prayer to God, poured out in song, and somebody was actually able to worship on my behalf um, in that moment. And um, at least from an emotional, um, experiential standpoint, pulled me back a little bit from the brink in that moment. So it was a, <clears throat> a wonderful experience. Each, sometimes the most songs we're hesitant to engage with can yield the best blessing for us. And that's one anecdote. I could share many more. We don't have the time, but I just want to encourage you that maybe your resistance to engage is a reason to double down on it. <clears throat> Hopefully each of us has a growing appreciation and value for singing in worship. I want to shift our focus to our mental approach to singing. This is a rhetorical question, so feel no pressure to respond, but do you like to sing in church? <clears throat> another, another way to phrase that, <clears throat> do you consider yourself a singer? <laughs> Many people don't, <clears throat> and that's okay. Running a little dry, so forgive me for hydrating. Um, some of you know that, yeah, I tend to struggle to arrive at the correct notes at the correct time, and I'm at peace with that. I'm just not a singer. Some people can sing, but they don't really like to, especially in public. Well, I want to issue a loving challenge today <clears throat> and for moving forward. You're not called to be a flawless singer, but you are called to sing. Bree, thank you so much. I just want to pause for a second, even though I know I don't have the time, to say that our church <clears throat> is blessed with several amazing platform coordinators that do a tremendous service every week that they really don't get heralded that much. And I just want to say thank you to, to Bree, to Sharon Cheek, to Stephanie Baker, 
and to Cheryl Dondino, who gives so much time and energy and attention to those who are up on the platform. So thank you very, very, very much. <clears throat> You're not called to be a flawless singer, but you are called to sing. Remember, singing in worship is not nearly as much art as it is spiritual discipline. Some of us are going to be better at it than others, <clears throat> and that's okay. But honestly, that's just like any other spiritual discipline, like prayer or fasting or giving or anything else. Just because it might be difficult or rough and somebody else might be, seem to be better at it than us doesn't mean that we shouldn't engage with it. It's often said as a joke, but it is true that the Bible doesn't say you need to be pitch perfect. It just says to make a joyful noise. Now, some people might say, well, I'm tone deaf and so I don't sing. Again, no need to respond, <clears throat> but if you've ever said or thought this about yourself, I want to conduct a brief little experiment. Being tone deaf is possible, but it's incredibly rare. Okay, so just conduct a little experiment with me real quick. Did I just play the same note or two different notes? Two different notes, very good. You're not tone deaf. <laughs> if you were tone deaf, you wouldn't have been able to tell the difference. <laughs> Even if you struggle to reproduce the tones I just played, you should still try to engage with singing. Last week I asked you a question. I said, if this fellowship thing goes according to plan, and by the way, it's not ours, it's his plan. If it goes according to plan, should we enjoy it? And yeah, very good. Again, your answer is yes. So I want to issue another challenge to you today. Don't just come to fellowship prepared to sing, but come prepared to enjoy it. Anticipate the blessing and the joy of singing in worship, even if it's not your thing. Whether you consider yourself a great singer or in fact the opposite, seek to be fully present and engaged in singing. Don't allow yourself to view the time of singing in our worship gatherings as something to be endured or even something to be consumed. Coach yourself that it's something to be engaged with. You remember the statement from Jesus about the Sabbath in Mark chapter 2, 27? He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, those words, of course, are very true. And the same canon should be said about our time of praise and worship. <clears throat> the songs that we sing, the opportunities we have to sing them, they're not something to be served or something to be endured. They are gifts for us to take advantage of and to experience and to engage with. I invite you to commit to singing in worship. And I want to briefly shift gears and focus for a few minutes on our physical posture in worship. Did you know that your posture, the position that you place your body in, will dramatically affect the experiences that you have in life? We know in general terms what it looks like to have good posture or bad posture. And it wouldn't be fair if I neglected to share with you that as I was typing this out for my notes, I did sit up a little bit straighter in my chair because I was like, good posture. Oh, wait, I better, better sit up straight. Um, <clears throat> so I want to do a little experiment together, if you're willing. If you're willing, close your eyes with me. With your eyes closed, I want you to picture in your mind what someone who is fully present 
and engaged in worship looks like. All right, you can open your eyes. Now, I would imagine that the mental images that we all had were as diverse as the people in this room, no doubt. However, I would venture to guess, if I may, that none of us pictured somebody seated in a pew with kind of a half recline going, with their arms folded across their chest and kind of a, a blank expression on their face, right? Can I confess something to you? If I don't approach worship with intentionality, I can be that guy. And that's me, Pastor Josh. I won't claim to like singing more than anyone else in this room, but I like my chances of winning that competition, okay? And if I can be lazy in worship, I know that we all can. We all can. Now, please don't hear this as some sort of condescending rebuke. There are countless understandable reasons why every single one of us might slip into bad posture if we aren't intentionally seeking to be present and engaged. In fact, I would say it's probably going to happen if we're not intentional about it. But as we are seeking to practice being fully present and engaged, how should we posture ourselves? What should our posture look like? Well, when you read the New Testament author's instructions on how to approach God, there are one or two words that show up an awful lot. Confidence and boldness. Now, the only reason we can approach God at all is because of Jesus. Amen? But because of the right standing before the Father that Jesus has given us, we do come in confidence and boldness. We come as a people knowing that not only will we be received, but we are expected and we are desired. I don't know about you, but when I envision a posture of confidence and boldness, my first thought is of someone standing tall. And as sort of a side note, this is kind of handy because exactly nobody in this room sings better sitting down than they do standing up. <laughs> Your posture is just much better for singing when standing. It's inarguable. And I know that standing in one place for an extended period of time isn't always enjoyable or easy for all of us or even possible for all of us. But I want to encourage you as far as possible, let's strive for this. Let's seek to have better posture in worship. Now, can I push just a little bit further? What do you see conspicuously pictured behind me? Someone standing with their arms raised. Now, I've been leading worship here at Beaverton probably more than anybody else for almost five years now, just because I'm up on the platform doing music a lot. And I know those of you who feel comfortable raising your hands during a song, because you've done it. <laughs> Can I confess something else to you? I got a lot of stuff to get off my chest this morning. I rarely muster the courage to do so myself. It's beyond my comfort zone. In fact, the handful of times that I have raised my hands during a song, most of them have been when I'm up front leading. <laughs> for one reason or another, that's actually easier for me than when I'm kind of not up on the platform. And I really believe that we need to acknowledge two things today in our community. I think they need to be said out loud. One is that as a general rule, raising hands in worship has an undefinable negative stigma to it in kind of many Adventist contexts. 
For those who don't do it, it's hard to identify why, but our attitudes range from uncomfortable to unthinkable. We don't, or at least we try not to judge those around us who do, but there is a nebulous but almost moral repulsion to many of us to to raise our hands while singing. Or, and I think this might be more true of us in general, is that we're aware of at least the remnants of a cultural revulsion against such behavior. (laughs) And we don't want to be shamed or embarrassed, and so we don't even allow ourselves to go there. It's just on the off chance that somebody might think less of us or say something or be turned off by us even going there. We don't don't even want to consider it. So many worship leaders in Adventist context have a good laugh at the good Chris Tomlin song, We stand and lift up our hands, which we usually sing sitting down with our hands down on our sides. But uh, (laughs) I think that kind of needs to be said. But two is just as important. As a general rule, there are no good reasons not to. I get it. For some reason, you physically maybe cannot raise your hands over your head. I totally get it. That's fine. But as far as those of us who are able to, there's no moral reason why doing so is bad. We need to let that go. What does raising your hands do for you in worship? Like, like, well, cool, I can. Why should I? It does two main things. It's an open posture. It's receptive. When you position your body in more openness, you position your mind in more openness. When you position your body more closed off, you present your mind as being more closed off. And also, in addition to being an open posture, it's a posture of surrender. Posture says, I'm not here to fight anything. I'm here to just be in the presence of my God. Now, please don't let your takeaway from the sermon be that Pastor Josh wants us all to stand with our arms raised for every song from now on. It's not it at all. Not it at all. Ultimately, it is your choice when, where, and how much to engage with the song and worship. All I want to do is today is invite you to consider how you might better place yourself in a position to practice being fully present and engaged. And so today it just seems fitting that we end with a song. We need to practice what we preach. In just a moment, we're going to sing together the wonderful song, Amazing Grace, with the chorus, My Chains Are Gone. And I'm going to lead us from the piano, which conveniently kind of prohibits me from being able to raise my hands too much. <laughs> but, but before we begin that, I want to invite you to stand with me. And I don't want you to stand just because I've asked you to. I want you to stand because you are covered by the blood of Jesus and you have full access to the Father in Christ as a son and as a daughter. We come with boldness, with confidence, not because of our merit, but because of the incredible grace and love of Jesus. And I want to invite you to do something that likely somebody in this room has never done before. I want you to raise your hands with me towards heaven. 
I know it's difficult to keep our hands raised throughout a four to five minute song, but I want to invite you, I want to even encourage you, you put your hands down. Good job. <laughs> I want to invite you and encourage you to, to take the choruses of the song as an opportunity, an invitation to raise your hands in worship as we sing. No one's going to judge you if you do. No one will judge you if you don't. But seek to push yourself into new levels of engagement as we worship together. Let's sing together. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now I'm found was blind but now I see it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace
pray together. Our Father in heaven, it is such a privilege to stand together with my brothers and sisters as your children, as your temples. May you gift us with wisdom. May you gift us with passion to practice your presence, to seek to be awakened daily and throughout our days to the fact that you have made our hearts your home. May we seek to engage with others as your temples to see the light that you have chosen to reveal to us through them. May we seek to reveal what you have in us to the world. And may our song never end. That someday as we are gathered together around your throne, we can join with the angels singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Amen. Have a wonderful Sabbath.